Father in heaven, be with us as we read this tough story today. Help us not lose heart in what happened in this story, but rather take warning so that we don't make those mistakes in our lives. Lord, be with us as we stand on the border. Help us to go in where you're calling us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little story today. It's a story about Israel, but it's one that that as we read it, I think you'll see applies to us as a people, but also applies to us as individuals. So as we go along, I think that'll become clear. We start in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Okay, a couple of things I want you to note here in this first verse, because it's very important. It says, send some men to explore the land which I am giving to them. What is the promise of God contained in the first verse? I am giving you this land. That's God's promise, okay? So they're going to send in some people, one from each tribe. Now, to give you the context of what's going on here, so, so God has miraculously brought them out of Egypt. He's delivered them from bondage. He's miraculously taken them through the sea, and the armies of the Egyptians were drowned in the sea. So his first grace is this deliverance, but then he's given him a second grace, and we talked about this when we did the series on the Ten Commandments. He brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and he gave them his laws. Now, why is that a grace, you say? It's a grace because they didn't know how to live. See, that's the problem in the world. We don't know how to live, but God has revealed to us his law to show us how we can live, how we can succeed, how we can prosper, how our lives can be good. So the giving of the law is a second grace. It wasn't given to, to we, we talked about this when we did the series, he didn't give us the 10 to save us from hell when we die, he gave us the 10 to save us from living in hell until we die, because that's what happens when you don't live that way. Jesus is the one that saves us, but the 10 keeps us from wasting our lives. Now, there's a whole chapter on this in the book Patriarchs and Prophets where Ellen White talks about this, and she makes an interesting point in there that, that it was, in fact, the fearfulness of the people that, that drove them to want to send the spies, and in the end, it was not a good idea. You're going to see in this story. Um, but that's not exactly how it reads in Numbers, but, but you might be interested in reading it. It's chapter 34, uh, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. But we'll go on here. Numbers verse 3, so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. Now, I want you to see if you recognize any of these names. From the, tribe of Reuben, from, from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Uh, you might recognize that one. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. Now, we would put a little asterisk there, and you're going to see why in a minute. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Volfsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, son of Maki. Now, there's going to be a little quiz at the end on those names, so I hope you got all those as we went through. 
All right, 12 tribes, 12 leaders of the tribes. But did you notice something in that? Nobody was sent from the tribe of the Levites. Now there's that thing again, right? The the 12 tribes of Israel, except there's 13. We've talked about that before. There's the 12 and there's the Levites. There were 12 sons of Joseph, but you'll remember, I mean 12 sons of Jacob, but you'll remember that, that Jacob took the two sons of Joseph as his own. So really there's 13 of them, even though they're normally counted as 12. There were 12 sons, the 12 tribes, and there were the Levites. But we already have talked about that before. Uh, Verse 16, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Now here's the parenthetical, here's the asterisk. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. That's a little more familiar, isn't it? So Joshua and Caleb. Probably the only two names in there you know, aren't they? There's a reason those are the only names you know. You'll see in a minute. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. Now, I'm going to read the next couple of verses, and while I do that, Justin's going to put, yeah, still Justin there. Justin's going to put uh, a map up here of the route they went. So if you can see that, it's a little hard to see, but you see the red line there. That's where they went, right straight up. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahab towards Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. So those are details that made sense to them at the time. We, we don't necessarily know that. But so this was where they went. Now, it wasn't empty. The land wasn't empty. So we've got another map here. You can't read this either necessarily, but you can see the different colors. You had the Amalekites, you had the Amorites, you had the Philistines, you had the Hittites, you had the Edomites, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Phoenicians. There's a lot of different people in this land. Verse 23, when they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, some along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut there. Now, Eshcol means cluster. That's why they named it that. So anyway, um, verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So they didn't carry these grapes around for a really long time because you can see in this other map, we've got a map here that shows where the valley of Eshkol is. That's a little spot there near Mamre. It's just north of Hebron, and you can see in the big square. So they were on their way back when they got the grapes. Now, this idea of the grapes carried between two people has always apparently captured the imagination of artists because a lot of artists love to, to depict this. So we, I found a couple pictures. This was just looking quick. So there's a couple of them going along with the cluster of grapes. That's awesome. I mean, they look like apples there. And that one. All right, there's another one here. And here they go. They're coming around the corner. They're waving. And the other guy's got some pomegranates and stuff in that other one. But you see off there on the left, they're being greeted by Moses. He's got his hands up like this. Now, there's a funny thing about this picture. 
He's got horns. Do you see the little horns on Moses' head? All right, I'm not going to tell you why they're there because it's based on a, a, a not a very good interpretation from medieval times of the Scripture. You look that up for yourself and find out why they had horns on uh, Moses' head. You'll see a lot of medieval art with horns on Moses, so you can check that out. All right, a little something to do this afternoon. Now, here's another one, Sunday school grapes. Those look like grapefruit. I mean, those are big guys there. All right, so it, apparently this really captured artists' imagination. They love this story. All right, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. Now listen to this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Now we'll put the map back up there. And, and they said to him, the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Okay. So this is the initial report. So here's the question I want to ask you. Are the facts in this report true? He said, what he said was, uh, the land flows with milk and honey, the people are powerful, the cities are walled and fortified, and we saw giants. Are those facts true? Absolutely true. Those facts are all absolutely true. Second question, which of those facts are relevant? See, this is the challenge. When God calls us to something new, there's always a whole plethora of facts. But what we have to discern is which facts matter. Because you'll remember at the beginning of this, this was the land that God promised them. So one fact that mattered was, yes, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. But the fact about the ones that were there, let's go on. Verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So here's what you got. You got Caleb saying, let's go, we can do this. And you got these other ten guys saying, mm, no, we can't. Now, I want you to see what happens here in the telling of this story. Initially, they give the facts. And this sometimes happens in churches. You'll see churches are trying to make a decision about something. They're trying to figure out the Lord's leading. And it's not always easy to understand the Lord's leading. But sometimes what happens is that the group will coalesce into two hostile teams. And initially, everything will be based on the facts. But over time, when they're not able to convince each other, how often one side or the other will start stretching the story just a bit, right? 
Well, this is what we see happening here in the ten that are giving the bad report. So, for example, verse 31, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. True or false? Well, I'm going to call that half-truth. They probably are stronger, but that doesn't mean you can't attack them, right? Now, the implication is if we do it, we'll lose. But do we know that? The only fact is they might be stronger. Whether or not we can attack them, that's up to the Lord, right? Second, verse 32, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Well, that's not even consistent with what they just said. They just said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And if you look at how strong and healthy the people that live there are, well, it's the opposite of a land that devours the people. It's a land that makes them giants. This is a fabulous land. So they're inconsistent with their own argument. And then you get down to verse 33. They say, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Well, that's plausibly true. But is it relevant? Does it matter? It's all about perspective on reality, isn't it? If you keep clear in your mind that God said, I'm giving you this land, then everything except the report of how great it is, is irrelevant. Unfortunately, though, they listened to the other voices. You see, we get into these situations and we start to to check our own resources and what we can do, and we realize that where God is calling us, I can't do that. And we forget that it's not just about us. God's involved. Unfortunately, despair began to set in. In Numbers 14, verse 1, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, now I want you to listen to these words because this is going to come back. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Fearfulness begets forgetfulness. When we become fearful, we forget how God has brought us to where we are. As you look at your life, how many of you have had a really easy life the whole way? No troubles. Yeah, good. No liars. It's hard. Stuff goes wrong. But you're here, aren't you? The Lord has brought you through some amazing things. Well, I know He helped me then, but I don't know about... See, when the new fear comes, we forget the way the Lord led us. Here they are. He brought them out of Egypt. That's a pretty big deal. Took them through the Red Sea. Destroyed the Egyptian army. A better army than anything they're going to find in Canaan. He gave them the law. He gave them water in the wilderness. He kept delivering. But now they're standing on the brink. And they've forgotten it all. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. 
and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, what have they not forgotten? These two have not forgotten that the Lord is with them and that it is His plan, it is His purpose. If the Lord is pleased with us, verse 8, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So here's their argument. It's a good land. God promised it to us. Therefore, the people of the land are not our problem. They're God's problem. If God promised it to them, then God's going to have to figure out how to get them in. Now, our job in that scenario is to be faithful. When we come to the border, even if it looks bad, go ahead and take that next step and go. That's faithfulness, to continue to take the next step. I find in my life very rarely does God show me what's going to happen 10 steps from now, but He does show me the next one. And that's really the only one I can take in any given moment, right? I can only take one. And He shows us the way. And He would have done that for them. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Nothing about the trip so far has been easy. It was tough coming out of Egypt. It was scary at the Red Sea. It was overwhelming when the presence of God showed up on Mount Sinai. There were multiple times where they were thirsty, hungry, tired. It was hard. But all they had to do was keep being faithful, and God would keep delivering them. Well, you can imagine Caleb and Joshua's opinion was not particularly welcome. Verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. I've been in a few church meetings not dissimilar to this one. (laughs) Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? starting to get a little close to home. I hope it's not us he's talking about, right? I will strike them down with the plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. It's strong words, but it's what they deserved, isn't it? God rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them. He gave them His laws. He showed them. He favored them over every nation on earth, every people on earth, and they refused to believe in Him. If he was being fair, they would not have survived that day. But here's the thing. The great works of God, while they benefit us, are not necessarily just about us. They are about God demonstrating his goodness, his purpose, and his righteousness. And Moses reminds him of this. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, If you kill them all, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, 
And they will tell the inhabitants, the Egyptians will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. It's interesting what he says, isn't it? He said, Lord, this isn't our reputation on the line. We know we're losers. This is your reputation on the line. You said you were going to take these people into Canaan. And if you can't do it, then everybody who says you can't will be right. Verse 17, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. Remember how the Lord told Moses his name? Moses is, is using it now. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We've talked about this before. It sounds terrible. But the truth is, it's reality, isn't it? When, when a parent, through a weakness, abuses a child, does it end there? No, it goes on, doesn't it? That's what happens when we sin. That's how sin works. Verse 19, in accordance with the great love, with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Now, this little speech of Moses, and the reason he gave it, I don't think he changed God's mind, but it was important that he speak these words. And it's important that we hear these words because what he has said here explains exactly why we need Jesus. Did you see it in here? Because the reality is, it's not just about us, okay? Here, here's how it works. In the garden, we aligned ourselves with God's enemy. And God's enemy started saying to God, you can't save them, they're bad. And you know what we do? We just keep proving the point, don't we? We just keep proving the point. And everybody kept proving the point. And so the devil, the accuser of the brethren, kept saying, they're all bad, you can't save them. But God had said he would. But what did it take for him to save us? Jesus had to come and become one of us because none of us were good enough. So Jesus became one of us and lived as a human the perfect life none of us lived, thereby assuring God's promise that He would save us and that we could be saved. And then we, by putting our faith in Him, become a part of this larger reality so that God can turn to the devil and say, no, you're wrong. They are good enough to save. Look at my son Jesus. That's how He did it. God's reputation is on the line. If he can't bring us into the promised land, then he's the one that's lied because he said he would. For all who put their faith in Jesus, he will bring. So in all of these stories, it's not just us. God's promises are on the line. God's purposes are on the line. Now, there is a there is a theology that sometimes happens 
in the Adventist church. And I'm just going to speak about this for a second. And this is kind of an aside here that, that, that misses this point. There's a theology that gets in among us sometimes called last generation theology. And what this is, is it's this statement that, that before Jesus comes, a group of us finally live perfectly. Now, here's the deal. I'd be thrilled if you all live perfectly. So go ahead. If you can do it, that's fabulous. I want that to happen. But the truth is, God's not waiting on that because Jesus already did it. Okay? Now, yes, I hope you all do achieve perfection. But it's really not the point. That point's already been made. Okay? Jesus fulfilled it. And any other teaching takes attention away from Jesus and puts it on us. And that makes us Pharisees. Okay? So, so, so don't go down that road. All right? Fine. Be perfect. I love that. Go for it. I would get along with all of you very well. Maybe. We'll see. But Jesus has already done it. All right, all right, back to the story. Verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in all the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, if you read the whole story again and again and again and again, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Now, this sounds mean, but I want you to hear this as you read this because God is simply fulfilling what they requested. All right? Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. And this ought to cause you in this moment to be considering in your mind what you might have said in a faithless moment in your life. It's a little startling to think about, isn't it? I will do the very thing you say. Verse 29, in this wilderness your bodies will fall. What did they say? It would be better for us to die in the wilderness than to die in there. So God said, okay. In the wilderness you will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. That's why you've heard of those guys. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder. Remember that? He brought us here that we would die and our children would become slaves. As for those children you claim you're worried about, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you rejected. Lord said, I'm going to do this. You can have what you wanted, but those kids you're worried about, I'm taking them in victoriously. 
Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. We don't want to know that. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. There's extra responsibility on the ones in the community of faith who turn the people against God's will. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. So all of these guys, all of the 12 that went in there were leaders. They were famous. How many of those names do you know? They weren't famous in the sight of God, were they? Joshua, Caleb. You know, one of the amazing things about this story, not even Moses and Aaron go into the land. Joshua, Caleb. That's it. Sometimes our words of unfaithfulness become the prophecy of our future. It's a troubling thought, isn't it? So what's the point today? All right. So as you, as you think about the story of Israel, there's this corporate personality to Israel. There's, a, there's this, this kind of, the story is told of them as a whole. And when you think of Israel, there's strength there, but there's also weakness, isn't there? There's faith, but there's also fear. There's obedience, but there's also rebellion. So here's the thing. Here's where it applies to us. We as a corporate group have a corporate personality as well. There is a, a personality of the Forest Lake Church, and there's strength in it, but we also have weakness. And there's faith in it, but we also have fear. And there's obedience in it, but we also have rebellion. It's here. It's in us. But it's not just us together. Every one of us individually, right? Every one of us has strengths, but we also have weaknesses. Every one of us has faith, but we also have fear. Every one of us is sometimes obedient, some more than others. But every one of us is also rebellious sometimes. So here's what I want to say to all of us together. So this is us as a corporate church. If God brings us to the border of the next reality he has appointed for us, Turning back in fear is not a good idea, no matter how large the giants in our way look. Now, I want to say to you, I think we're doing pretty good right now because we are standing at a border in some ways. There's a lot of changes. There's a lot of difference in our future, not just with the, the plastic that's wrapping up the back of the church right now. There's a lot of changes. But I feel like the community is going forward faithfully. I want to encourage you to continue to do that in every way, participation and also in giving to this project so that we can finish what we started. That's all part of faithfulness. 
I think we're doing that pretty good. Faithfulness, not fear. Here's what we got to remember. God's purpose for us cannot be undone by hardship, challenge, or difficulty. In a little bit, it's going to be a challenge and a hardship to get around in the back of the church. But that doesn't mean it's going to fail. It just means that's what we have to push through to get to what God has prepared for us. All right, so that's us together. There's a lot of other challenges that will come, but, but that's us together. Now, you individually, me individually, if God brings you to the border of the next reality He has appointed for your life, turning back in fear is not a good idea, no matter how big the giants look in your way. So what does this mean? Well, it, it can mean anything to any of us. For example, you may have some sort of a habit or an addiction or something in your life right now that you know God has brought you to the border of and said, it's time for you to go across. This is an important moment because if you step back in fear in this moment, then plan on 40 years in the wilderness. How long do you want this to go on? If He is calling you, take your next step. Take your next step. Whatever it is, whatever you're dealing with, what, maybe, maybe it's a financial crisis in your life and you're nervous. And here I am up here the last few weeks talking about how everybody needs to participate and give and you can't even figure out how to pay your bills. Well, if God has put that on your heart, Take your next step. Maybe it's, it's uh, deepening your walk. Maybe you have had a burden on your heart for a long time where God is saying, I want you to get up a half an hour earlier and read your Bible every day. And you've been thinking about that and meaning to do it for about 10 years now. Don't let 10 years become 40. Take your next step. Don't turn back. Yeah, you're fearful. It'll change your life. It will change your life for the better. What's the next step? Hardship, challenge, difficulty will never stop God's purpose for your life. The only thing that will stop God's purpose for your life is when you are faithless and refuse to follow. Now, this whole story of Israel going into the land, it's interesting. The author of Hebrews reaches back to that story when he's writing about the Christians. It, it happens in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Isn't that beautiful? Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. We have a heavenly calling. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Moses was the servant. Jesus is the son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, Jesus was faithful to the Father, right? We are to be faithful to Jesus. That's the call. 
to maintain our faith and trust in Jesus. Now, verse 16, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? It's the story. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of what? Unbelief. They lost their faith. They stood on the border of the land God promised and lost their faith and had to go back to the wilderness. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, it still stands. We're on the border. It still stands. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who believed. If you don't have faith in the promise, the good news does you nothing. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means nothing if you don't have faith in the promise. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what? The faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace fearfully with confidence so that we may receive mercy, that's what we have to have first, and find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you standing on the border today? The border between where you are and where Jesus is calling you to be. This is a time for faithfulness, not fear. If God is for us, who can stand against us, right? If God is for us, who can stand against us? So let's not stand on the border any longer. It's Jesus leading us. Faith, not fear. So this is what I say. Forward in the name of Jesus. Forward in the name of Jesus. I want you to say it with me. You ready? Forward in the name of Jesus. I'm going to give you 50-50 on your conviction. <clears throat> and you're going to have to say it because I'm starting to lose my voice. So let's say it again. Ready? Forward in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, take us forward in the name of Jesus. Give us this victory in our lives. Give us this victory as a people. In Jesus' name, amen.